Good morning, everybody. I got what I sowed, didn't I? <laughs> uh, guys, my Beth has come out today, and I'm not going to embarrass her by asking her to come up or anything like that, because I'll pay for it on the way home. But please feel free to say hello to, to my Beth. She's sitting where I was sitting. Uh, and it's great that Beth's here with me today. I think it might make her happy too, because I keep talking about you guys when we get home, and I get home, and she looks at me with a puzzled look, but now she won't be able to do that anymore. So, Beth, with me, please say good day um, to her after the service. Let's bow our heads. Almighty Lord, as we uh, end a decade, start a new de decade, as seasons change, Lord, I pray that you will ever fill our hearts with a deeper and deeper thirst for your word, that it won't be neglected, that it will be nourished in our lives. Amen. So what we're going to look at today is when history when his, history is lost. We're thinking about yesterday, but looking forward to the trajectory of tomorrow. Because as the next decade comes, I don't think this place, not the church, this place called Earth, is on a really healthy trajectory. And the trajectory looks um, ever more harmful the more I start to understand the nature of the path that is this earth and where it's going. So I want to look at where his, when history is lost because we're on the changing of the season. So we'll develop this a bit more next, uh, next Sunday as well. We're on the cusp. It's not even the cusp, is it? It's just about two days away. The, the seasons change in the sense of the calendar and that often marks things in our life that we want to change as well. We have New Year's resolutions. Does anybody here make New Year's resolutions? Do you stick with it, Gary? Yeah, I Good. Well, I yet to say yes. I'll put you on the spot. What's the first resolution? <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of a conundrum there, isn't there? <laughs> um, guys, I don't make resolutions because I know I can't keep them. But nevertheless, it's still a practice that's quite... Well, quite wide, isn't it? So thinking about yesterday but looking to tomorrow. So what we're going to do now is start off thinking about yesterday. In um, Paul's trial before Felix, seems to me sums up the whole gospel. And this is around 63 AD, this event happened. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. It's near the end of Acts. And Paul's having a chat with Felix and he says, he was the, the governor of the time. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. He's afraid of hearing what God's saying and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Now, there are two virtues and one promise that have become completely lost in this world. You know, I've talked about um, going to India early in the year. I was going to India and... Absolutely knew no one there. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and I was going to be teaching, well, I did teach in the suburbs, the villages around this township of Rajamundri, which has got 500,000 people in it and no traffic lights except one. I told you that bit, didn't I? Now, I had to work out, because I was dealing with Indians uh, that were organising this, getting into their head and uh, getting into what they wanted to be said. So the best I could understand was we've got to start at square one. We've got to start at the gospel of the Lord Jesus. 
the things we've been teaching here, I'd have no hope of being able to teach even with a good interpreter uh, over there. And it got to that stage, I think I told you, where they started to bow down and think, this guy's a guru. Of course, I had no competition. <laughs> There's nobody else there saying the same sorts of things I was saying that we can get every week. So I thought, I've got to study the scriptures, I've got to study the sermons in Acts, because the sermons in Acts are outreach sermons. They're talking to a people to find out about Jesus, which is what I was going to India for, talking to Hindus. So I thought, I studied them. There's eight or nine sermons in Acts. So I studied each one of the sermons. I tried to get, get the, um, the similarities out of them, which are the important, piece, the, the important pieces to teach. And then I got to the end of Acts, near the end of Acts, and Paul summed it all up. This is him chatting to a Roman who had power of life and death over him. Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and judgment to come. So that's what I taught in India. I don't know how those words are translated, but that's the key of what Paul was saying. Righteousness, self-control and judgment. Now, that made the person who was listening fearful. Fascinating, isn't it, that that would make him fearful. But then again, I reflect on how many Aussies have said to me, I can't go into a church. I why is that, mate? He says, because the roof will fall down upon me. Have you heard that? You might have said it before you became a Christian. There's a sense of fear about approaching God that they stay away from him. And so Felix says, that's enough for now, you may leave. And when I find it convenient, I will send for you. He was there, I think, for two years. Then he ended up in Rome. So these virtues that Paul taught haven't been taught today either. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't ever recall hearing a sermon on righteousness. I won't ask if you have or you haven't, but I just haven't, unless I'm teaching it. Now, something sad about that. That's cool. It's cool why we're here. You probably heard a, heard a, a sermon on self-control and judgment, you probably heard, but righteousness, the first thing that kicks this list off, is absent. But even in self-control and judgment, Particularly judgment is one that's often neglected these days. But this is in our history, this is in our biblical history. This is what Paul taught 2,000 years ago. It's what Jesus taught 2,000 years ago. So I want to measure, I want to give us a thermometer of where Christianity's at in this world. Now these, these figures I've got, 18 months old, but I don't think 18 months would have made much difference. Now the Uniting Church, this bold quote, I took from their website 18 months ago. Now, this is copy and paste. No Jeff Taylor's words here, except for the end. This is their doctrinal standards document of 1997, which is still current because it's still on their website. Uniting Church acknowledges that the Church has received the books of the Old and New Testaments as unique prophetic and apostolic testimony in which it hears the word of God. But it's not the word of God. They're saying it only hears the word of God. Now, I'm a bit puzzled with that because somehow, somehow I then myself have to determine what is the word of God that I'm hearing out of the Bible and what isn't the word of God. So what it does, it places me as the arbiter of truth. I decide what in that in between these black black covers, I have to decide 
What part is God talking to me? What part God isn't talking to me? It's not all the word of God. If that makes me the the the, the genius that can get what out of what out of what out of God's words that I want to get out of His words, and it gives me permission to ignore that which isn't the word of God, because I can only hear the word of God from Scripture. Not all of it is the word of God. So as soon as I'm at that base, I'm walking in darkness because I'm making myself the person who decides what I read and what is God saying to me about it and what God isn't saying to me about it. Now, there was a survey done at the same time that as many as two out of five British millennials do not know that Jesus Christ is the baby in the nativity scenes. So that's two-fifths. I wonder if they did that survey in Australia for doing me a smaller, uh, smaller statistic. The survey carried out research by a company called One Poll on behalf of Hotels.com. Now, I've got no idea why Hotels.com wanted to do this research, but I found it fascinating. Uh, they found out that 39% of 2,000 Britons uh, aged between 21 and 38 did not know the baby's identity. A similar amount, or 37% of respondents, also did not know that Joseph and Mary were Jesus' earthly parents. Now, that's Sunday school stuff, isn't it? That's stuff we would have got in Scripture when we were at school, certainly when I was going through school. But it's gone, it's lost. The Christian basics, Christian foundations are getting further and further uh, away from the foundations they had. Now, the same poll examined a number of other questions regarding family and Christmas. They found that less than 10% of young people were able to name the gifts by the three wise men, guessing it's three, in the story, namely gold, frankincense and myrrh. So the truth of Christianity that's flooded the world for 2,000 years from Europe and Asia out to the remainder of the world, the truth of Christianity is hidden at best. Now, next slide, thanks Christian. Do you like that picture? That picture could mean a couple of things. picture could mean that somebody's standing on the word of God. Well, that's how they live in their life. I'm standing on God's word. But it could also be that God's word is under my feet, that I'm stomping on it, I'm destroying it. So you can take it whichever way you like, but I'm taking it the second way because it seems the picture, that picture seems to fit Romans 1. Because what we do, I killed a... A cockroach this morning. It must have been sick because I got it. It didn't run away from me. It didn't go underneath a crevice in a wall. I just got it. I stood on it. That's all I had to do. So the fact of standing on the Bible can mean either. But let me read Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This is someone standing on the truth squashing it to the ground, saying, I'm going to rub that into the dirt because I don't want that cockroach in my life anymore. And that's becoming ever deeper and deeper in our life. Now, if you want to read the rest of Romans 18, uh, Romans 1, I won't get into it, but if you want to read the rest of it, you'll see how Paul catalogues there, in Romans 1, the nature of sin that is now permitted to be multiplied because they've suppressed God's word, uh, suppressed it, out of all imagination. Now, God's word 
then leaves mankind and leaves them to come into all that uh, shameful sin that the world is now honouring and were being dishonoured for. So how did we get here? How did we get to this point? We've got those pages repeated, haven't we? Let's go to the next page. We're damned to repeat history. Ignorance of history leaves us stark naked to simply repeat it. We haven't learnt from it, so we will do it again. He who has suffered has done with sin. If I have suffered and I recall my history that led me into that suffering, I'm not going to repeat that suffering. I don't want to sin anymore. I have to look to the past to get a better future. What I did in the past and hurt me, I don't want to repeat in the future because I don't want the pain anymore. So it's the same in the history of the world. Ignorance of history leaves us stark naked and stark naked to simply repeat it. Faith in God's words has been eroded. Western history has rewritten, jettisoned the, rewritten and jettisoned the roots that are now severed. And darkness can only result because we have severed God's word from the truth. And we've all decided what's in our minds is best for the truth. I had a conversation 20 years ago with an eye doctor. I think he was Greek. And uh, he was giving me a serve about how missionaries are culpable for what they've done in, uh, in the lands they went to. They're rewriting history. The missionaries did good. They brought civilization, particularly the headhunters, didn't they? But it's being rewritten. Grasp the gravity of the loss of Christian faith as it will ever only multiply in this new decade. Don't think this decade's getting better. It's getting worse. It's heading, if it's not in it already, to a moral compass that is out of sight or a moral compass that's now in a set pit, cesspit. It's just covered by foolishness. It's just covered by immorality. I only read yesterday about a Christian pastor who, um, he just gave up being a pastor too, which is, didn't say why. But this guy was homosexual, a practising homosexual, and he said he can be Christian, a practising homosexual, and all that's okay. Well, that's not what the Lord tells me. Jesus came to free us from sin, not to multiply sin. Jesus came to bring us into freedom, not into bondage. Now that guy was saying how unfortunate, or well, he's using stronger words than that, how bad it is that people like me have said the things he is doing is wrong. And how, he's, how the whole homosexual uh, community is hurt by the stand of Christians, stance of Christians. So he's, he's welded his faith, or his knowledge of Jesus, about Jesus, with his behaviour and justified it. Now that's darkness. That's not light. He's moving in darkness. There's only ever deeper darkness we're going to get moving into. Guys, have you heard of the continuum of gender? It blew me away. I only heard this last week. So God made a male and female. I always wonder why God put that in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. It puzzled me because it's so bleeding obvious. Why did he have to tell us? that which is so clearly obvious. Well, when he wrote Genesis, whenever that was, he knew that the day was going to come where we didn't believe in genders. 
who made them male and female. So there's this continuum now. It's not a biological function. It's not a function of DNA or genetics or however the gender is decided. But it's a function of one end of the continuum is male, the other end is female or vice versa. It doesn't matter. And you decide where you are on that continuum. Which where you get these all mixed up types of uh, uh, definitions of people that just don't make sense. So we're in a place that's a cesspit and that God's moral compass is sinking further and further and further into the darkness as God's word is suppressed. Now my mum showed me faith in God's word um, at church yeah, and uh, Sunday school. But what mum had a habit of doing too is you used to be able to buy little boxes. They're about small jewellery boxes. And in those jewellery boxes, they had Bible verses or little Christian sayings all wound up and slotted in in a vertical position. So you open them up, they're about two inches long. And what you did, they're packed in tightly, so when you bought this box full of these little Christian gems, when you bought that box, it came with some um, tweezers. So you could pick out one verse at a time and read it and slot it back in that gap. Now I used to watch my mum do that. I watched them many times. It fascinated the young mind and it stuck in my mind. That's gone. Those, has anybody even heard of those boxes? Thanks, Gary. Beth, you had to. <laughs> Guys, Christianity, the world is so far away from Christianity. It's, it's in darkness. My mum also gave me a plaque uh, which I've put up in my garage. I got it when I was about eight. There's a car on it, because I like cars and a Bible verse across the top. Now, I still can't remember what it is, but every time I'm in my garage, I'm looking at it. I've got two of them. That was sown. Christian things was part of life. Now they're not even part of our anger. They're removed. Now, what's happening is Satan continues to build, Satan continues to build the Bible out of this world. And he wants to do that because as he rewrites history, he's taking us further away from our Christian roots. So therefore, further away from the good Lord. Now, next slide, thanks, Christian. Three men of great understanding, great intelligent men. I can say two of them are great. One of them you can discuss, that one. Karl Marx wrote, the first battlefield, that is, to uh, challenge a people, to change a people, is to rewrite history. Take away the heritage of uh, the heritage of a people, and they are easily persuaded. I could say, if I rewrite my sins and justify my sins, I can then go and continue in suffering. For he who has suffered has done with sin. I've got to remember my history if I'm going to change my future. Karl Marx's dad moved to Germany, and I think it was around 1850s, 1860s. Karl Marx's dad was a Jew and he was raised in a Jewish household. But when Karl Marx landed at whatever township it was in Germany the family set up a business in, when he landed there, he saw his dad put all his Judaism aside in the interest of commerce because his dad had a shop, businessman. So his dad had rewritten his history so he would appear to the, to the Germans to be acceptable in the world of commerce. So he had to delete 
is Judaism. Now, Karl Marx is growing up in this uh, fabric, this framework, and he just did not like what he saw happening. And, guess, and of course, the result of that is socialism and communism because he is reacting to his dad's reaction to rewrite history. So it's lost. By, losing, by rewriting history, covering history, history itself is lost and the lessons we can learn. Now, Alexander Sol Solzhenitsyn, probably expressing what Russia was doing at the time, to destroy a people, you must first sever their roots. Sever their heritage. Sever what they're looking back on. Sever their foundations. Sever their scaffolds. And that's what's being done to Christianity these days. The scaffolds, the things that are correct that have been erected uh, for, for millennia, are now being tossed out. Obviously, gender's one of them. So it's an assault on faith that we face and our roots are being destroyed. The most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. George Orwell. Now, I'm assuming those guys didn't know each other at any point in time. I can't see how they could have. Maybe they'd read Karl Marx. But Karl Marx certainly wouldn't have read Solzhenitsyn or George Orwell. But they're all saying the same thing, aren't they? The way to destroy a people is to rip out their history. Forget the past and you will repeat it tomorrow. So seeking our true heritage, I really do want to restore faith in the Bible. I don't know whether I need to restore faith in the Bible with, with this congregation, but I want to repeat it. And there are so many things coming against us that are going to take us away from the Bible. We're running, we're running into a new decade. Now, what's 2030 going to be like? When 2010 came, I had no idea at all that I'd be speaking on the, the on speaking about the continuum, the, the continuum of gender. That wasn't on anybody's mind 10 years ago. Hey, you know what? I stood up here last Sunday and preached. It wasn't even on my mind then. I only learned about it this week. The continuum of gender. What's going to happen by 2030? Well, the Bible's in left in a cesspit and covered. The truths are timeless, and every generation has mounted has mounted an assault on it, as much as every generation has also found it faithful. But nowadays, its integrity is being uh, waylaid and buried. See, what men wanted to say has changed. So they've got to force the Bible into what they want and justify their behaviour by what they want, by what they want. That's not what the Bible says about itself. It's here to free us from sin, not to get us to support sin. It is not an agent that's going to honour sin. So therefore, people have to change it. We must begin with the Bible. Look to the Bible's self-descriptors. Self-descriptors. This is amazing to me, but it's got, it's got to be the work of the Holy Spirit. That this, these points are so clear that people just don't get them. The Bible's wise for salvation. All of Scripture is God-breathed not just the parts that suit me. 
All of scripture is God-breathed. So if I can't accept in the beginning, first three words of the Bible, in the beginning God, fool, I'm going to have trouble with the rest of scripture. If I'm going to dilute the Bible from Genesis 1, verse 1, gee, I'm not going to have anything to read by the time I get to Revelation 22. Look to the Bible self descriptions because it's all breathed, all of it is God breathed. Nothing to debate. It's very useful. If I want to start debating with the Bible, I've already lost. The Bible trains in righteousness. Now, whatever we've taught in school, no school teachers ever heard, uh, taught us about righteousness. Righteousness is acting without prejudice, therefore, no consideration of self. Acting without any gain for self. Just look at the cross. No gain for Jesus, just immense pain that none of us should ever, ever have to imagine. The Bible equips God's own for every good work. God's word does that. So if I'm going to be a servant of the good law, and I believe we all want to be that in here, I need to have the Bible. Because it's teaching me the good works I can do and showing me how I can do them. We are not on the face of this earth, face of this earth, for lethargy. We're here to bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now, this plus a whole host more is what we lose, these items in bold black, when it stays on our shelves, or worse still, is denied. Only darkness can result across our minds and our spirits if we're leaving the Bible unattended. Is there any true value in a Bible for you that gathers dust? I've got one at home. I've got one that gathers dust. Beth inherited this really nice uh, ancient table. Ancient, like about 150 years old. Might be a bit older than that, but I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. And I was rummaging through some things the other day and I got a very old Bible, I think it was my mum's or, or grandparents that I found, an old King James one. And it's pretty tatty. So I put that on the table that Beth, that Beth's got that's ancient because the Bible and the table marry. It looks like they're from the same era. So I've got the Bible there as display and it's gathering dust. It's the only one I've got gathering dust. Is there any true value in a Bible if it's still gathering dust? Now, the Bible is not idle words. Grasp your sense of history. Moses says this from Deuteronomy. He says to the people just before they enter the promised land, take to heart all the words I have solemnly, solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are life. They're not hollow. They're not empty they're not meaningless and they're going to survive. By them you will live long in the land you, you, are to, you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will live long if you've got God's words in your heart. They are your food for life. They're not empty, they're not idle or hollow. And God's words are strength. Now, I stumbled upon this verse a little while ago, but it's a verse that stuck with me. I bet if I asked you to put your hand up for John 3.16, you'd all know that. Who knows Jeremiah 23.29? Hey, I already learned it. I stumbled on it. God says, 
Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? The word of God can do that, can't it? When it shows us our sin, and we get down on our knees and our tears flow. God's word hammering. No wonder people refuse to come under its power because they don't want to be hammered. They don't want to be shown for what they are. They want to stay in the position they are in and justify their sin. It's why they pull the Bible apart or leave it closed. God's words are not just idle words. They aren't just uh, uh, hollow. They're not infrequent. They're not there just to charm us because God's a good author. They're not just idle words. They are your and my very life and protection now, today. And then, of course, in eternity. I need the word of God because it will never fade away. That's good news, isn't it? Well, many years ago, probably 20 years ago, I heard a Pentecostal pastor preach. And he preached with all the aplomb that Pentecostal pastors preach. He had a large church, he still has a very large church over um, northwest. And he said, you don't need the word of God anymore. You don't need the Bible. You only need the Holy Spirit. So I can close this and put it aside, sit down and have my time with the Lord, leaving the Bible closed and pray and then whatever comes into my imagination, I can say it's God's word. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't speak to you. He speaks to me. But I'm starting with the Bible every time. And the Bible's going to be a measure for what foolishness or what accuracy you come out with. See, outside of the fact that the guy's just plain wrong, that we don't need it anymore, he's actually missed the fact that it lasts forever. He's already saying you don't need it. God's word will never fade away. That will stay true. So let's tie this all together. I've got a few K's under my belt and probably too many donuts as well. But I have learnt that I know the Bible has never failed me and it's never going to. If something disagrees with the Bible, it is disagreeable to God. It's not up for me to change the Bible. Jesus, John says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way, the truth and the life. I want the truth given to me from the Bible. It's only giving me truth, so I've got no space. No space at all to think I'm better than the Bible and can pull and push things in it and out of it. Jesus said he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of truth. Jesus is the word of truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So what the Holy Spirit's going to tell me is going to be measured by the Bible. Guys, I need the word of God more than breath itself. Because you know what? When I hand in my knife and fork, when I'm on the brown side of the grass and not the green side of the grass, when I've lost my breath, I will still have God's words. Because they're eternal. They're not going to be lost. When I hand in my knife and fork, I'm going to have a Bible underneath me and a Bible on top of me in the casket. Right? All that is is a metaphor. 
of saying, I'm going to be surrounded by God's word in death as well as in life. But it's going to happen. Because God's word is what vouchsafes me, that holds me strong, that keeps me coming. It keeps me on the narrow track. Now, I've built my entire life on the unshakable truth of God's word. So I too shall be buried, buried with it. Now, I used to teach this little mnemonic, B-I-B-L-E, best information before leaving earth. Bible. Has anybody heard of that before? I'm going to claim it then. Best information before leaving earth. I don't know if I said it, if I created it. I don't think I did. I've taught it a lot though. The Bible is to the soul as air is to the lungs. Remember we talked about how the soul lives on? The body doesn't live on, it just decays, becomes dust. But we need God, we need God's words in our soul. I haven't got them. I'm going to be too hot to tell. Guys, each new year marks off a new season with great hope. For this new year, permit the living word of God, not the dead word of God, not the word of God I can pull apart and say, this is right and this is wrong and I'm better than the word of God. The living word of God that's going to last forever, the word that every time you open it, you can find something new in it, despite the fact you've read that passage a hundred gazillion times before. This living word of God. For this new year, permit the living word of God to feed you and to form you that your roads in 2020 will rise to meet you. Now, you can't say that God is silent if your Bible's closed. You just can't say that, God's silent. Because, of course, it's got dust on it. doesn't mean he's silent. It means we just haven't opened it. So, guys, as we start this year, one more slide, thanks, Christian. Um, this, this verse I learnt quite some time ago now. From Job. Job was a man who had a bit of a hard time in life, wasn't he? A bit, bit of sadness, a great deal of loss. We're approaching the end of the book. And he says, I have treasured the words, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Job got that right. Amidst his suffering, he turned to the Lord. He didn't flee from the Lord. He chose the Lord. He didn't reject the Lord amidst his suffering. And it was his words that he treasured in his, from, from God's mouth in his heart. Could you write that for yourselves? Wouldn't you like that written on your headstone? That you're known for someone who's treasured the words of God's mouth more than my daily bread. Just to close. If you're making New Year's resolutions and we want to sow into the next next season well, we're going to talk about that next week. If you want to sow into the next season well, start with the little rule, Bible before brekkie. Use it for quite a while now and it works. So when you get up in the morning, if you like Beth and I, um, you can get a cup of tea. And then you sit down and you have a mag and you open your Bible. Make that your practice in 2020 because what we sow in 2020 
is the foundations for the next decade. I want good foundations. I don't want sloppy ones. So, the Christian history has been lost from this world. It's been taken away. It's been snatched away. It's been lied about. It's been rewritten and it's been trampled on. But for those who have treasured the words of his mouth more than their daily bread, they are the ones that have the strong foundations to look to the next decade and just not the next year. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, that you've never left us unattended. Thank you, Father, that you are writing your words in our hearts and strengthen our resolve each day to draw to you first, to draw to you alone and to draw to you with our word open. For, Lord, we need you more than we need breath. Amen.